episode of the Culture and Inequality podcast. This is the first episode of our new season where we continue discussions of culture, inequality, intersectionalities around the world with scholars from uh, the field of sociology, but also cultural studies, film studies and other things. People interested in understanding how culture affects inequality and the other way around. My name is Gieselinde Kuipers of KU Leuven in Belgium, and today I'm talking to Ricky Changwook Kim and Dan Hasler Forrest. Uh, could you please briefly introduce yourself, Ricky? Hello, uh, I'm Changwook Kim. My English name is Ricky. So I'm assistant professor of sociology at Handong Global University in South Korea. Uh, so my main research interest focuses on the topic of creative and digital labor in East Asia. And recently, you know, the more and more young people want to work in creative and digital industry, but these industries provide with highly precarious working and living conditions for the young people we're in. So I mean, I'm basically researching about you know that topic. And Dan Hasler Forrest. Hi, good morning. I'm um, uh, or good day wherever you are. Uh, I uh, I'm an assistant professor at the Media and Culture Studies Department at Utrecht University in the Netherlands. Um, I am a lifelong film and television addict, and I have translated that interest into a um, uh, an ongoing academic career. I guess my interest is mainly in the relationship between politics and entertainment. So how entertainment reframes the way we see our material environment. And I guess more specifically, since we live in the world of global capitalism and how capitalism, both as a general framework for us to accept, but also as something to resist through culture, uh, is, um, uh, is, 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 articulated through um, through culture. I guess well, that's a weird sentence, but I guess we're going to have to live with it. Thank you. So today we're talking about Parasite, the most sociological movie of the 21st century so far, at least. This 2019 movie directed by Korean director Bong Joon-ho won all major movie awards and much to the surprise of the director was a box office success around the world. It was also a feat for social scientists everywhere because this is a movie about class and everything that comes with it. Social mobility, aspiration, distinction, jealousy, class stereotypes, class disgust, capitalism, uh, the strange intimacies of service work, but also the cultural beliefs and boundaries that uphold these social structures. And since it's also a very well-made movie, we discuss this not only with a Korean cultural scholar, but also with a film scholar, as you've heard. Uh, so what we will discuss today is what this movie tells us about social inequality and its relation with culture. So what does it tell us about, on the one hand, how culture reproduces and legitimates inequality, and on the other hand, how inequalities are culturally shaped or culturally specific, or maybe not, since this Korean story felt oddly familiar to so many of us around the world. So to start with a question about the movie uh, for Dan and Ricky. So what is the moment or the scene of the film Parasite that really impressed you most? So first, Dan, oh, can you tell us? Yeah. Uh, it's so hard to pick one scene that impressed me because the whole movie is so is so thoughtful and so deliberate in everything that he does. But the, I guess one scene that stands out that became an instant meme that always makes me just 
makes me giggle is uh, where uh, the Jung, the young, the daughter of the poor family, first arrives at the rich house, at the park's house, and she stops for a moment to repeat the jingle that she has learned to remember who she's, the role that she's playing. And uh, what I love about this is the fact that the way that she rem- the way that she's been conditioned to remember her identity is through a, a commercial jingle, right? And that a commercial is therefore the most appropriate way to introduce herself to this rich family who tend to think in these kinds of uh, cliches. Yeah. Thank you. So, Ricky, what for you is the most memorable moment of well, that? Okay. For me, it's the scene of the Kitex. Uh, he's the father of Kim's family. Uh, he's killing a Mr. Park. So the, you know, around the last, last part of the movie. So the upon seeing Mr. Park's disgusted reaction to Kunsa's smell. So he suddenly take the knife and kill him. So that's a very powerful scene. And it showed that, you know, in this movie, usually the oppressed people, you know, they're fighting each other. Uh, they hate each other. There's a conflict that is generally between, in, you know, the intergroups. They actually, uh, there's a conflict. But at that scene is actually, you see that some intra-class uh, violence is actually happening. So uh, to me, that scene, that part is, you know, it's it's a very important scene. So, yeah. and I, I, oh, I, I love that too. Yeah, I'll explain more about this at, at you know the, the last part of our podcast. More, you know, why why this scene is so important for me. So, okay. So clearly, as you may have noted, so we're not we're 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 spoiling. We're giving spoilers here. So we will discuss the entire movie. So we're assuming you've seen it, and if you haven't, I'm sorry. We already told you how it ends. Almost will not be too much, very close to the ending. So just so you know. So this brings you to the the readings, which is the second part. So usually in this podcast we have readings that we discuss. So uh, this time actually the the central core thing to digest is not a reading but a film so we're assuming that you've seen the movie which comes in two versions so there's the original color movie there's also the more cinephile black and white version apart from the movie we have asked each of our guests to uh, also introduce some texts that you can read along with the movie to give it more depth. For Dan, this is an essay, a short essay that he wrote on the movie, and Ricky has suggested a a paper on social inequality in Korea. Uh, so Dan, could you briefly say something about your own essay about Parasite? Sure. I mean, like, um, the thing that struck me about the film um, once it became the surprise Oscar winner last year was that, uh, was that last year? Sorry, I've lost track of time in the corona. Yes, uh, before, the year 2019, right? Yes. Yeah. So, sorry, I have no more conception uh, yeah. of time. Yeah, no. But anyway, when it, when it, when it won, and, and when it, um, uh, it, it was so, it was so sweet and moving to see, um, see Bong's surprise every time about how he thought that he had made a film that was so specifically Korean, but that every country where he showed it and where it was screened at festivals, people had the same kind of response. And that it made him realize that we basically live in the all in, all in the same country now. We all live in the country of capitalism, um, and so 
jumping off of that thought, I, you know, I, I've been a fan of his films for a long time. And many of his films are science fiction films. Um, uh, I think The Host was the film that really, uh, that really uh, was his, his major breakthrough. But then he also made Snowpiercer and Okja. Um, and I was thinking about how um, the question about the film that pe people tend to ask, like, are, which one is the parasite, right? The poor people or the poor family or the rich family, because they're all codependent on each other in different ways. Um, and I thought, well, looking through his previous films, it's clear that he's not really interested in defining either of those groups as the parasite, but he's interested in making, as you said, a sociological film in which the parasite is actually the system that puts them up against against each other and even within their own classes against each other. Um, so I thought in, there were already so many brilliant analyses of Parasite itself that I wanted to look back a little bit further and see how his previous films had really kind of paved the way to thinking in those, um, to, to dramatizing a system that is that is geared towards required competition between everybody. So, um, and what kind of solutions he gives for that. So anyway, that's the, that's kind of the, the background for my article. Thank you. So Ricky, can you say something about the article you shared? Okay, so uh, yes, first of all, I want to introduce the author, Hagen Ku. So he's an emeritus professor in sociology department at the University of Hawaii. And he's also a renowned labor sociologist whose work focuses on the historical formation of the Korean working class. So this paper is relatively recently written in 2019, and it provides with a great overview of how the country like South Korea, uh, known as its remarkably rapid economic growth with relatively modest economic inequality, currently experience new emerging forms of severe inequality and transformation of its class boundaries. So he thesisized and overview the recent findings from various sociological and economical uh, researches on the topic of economic polarization uh, between regularly employed and non-regularly employed workers and between employees of large firms and smaller firms and the other between a minority of top income earners and the rest of the labor force. He concluded that the skewed economic inequality includes a shrinking middle class, blurring class boundaries, internal divisions within both the middle and the working class, and the rise of a uh, new affluent middle class. So the movie's Mr. Park is a paradigmatic figure of a new affluent middle class. You know, he's a CEO of the IT firm, so. So basically the film is, is the movie of this paper, right? Yes, yes, exactly, yes. I was also surprised when I found this paper, you know. So... These readings are all available on the website of the European Centre for Culture and Inequality, so eucci.eu, including uh, all the other episodes of the podcast and the assignments. So before we move to the substantive discussion, we have the standard question. So when you read, when you read these articles in conjunction with the movie, what surprised you most? So Ricky... What was the thing that struck okay, you? Okay, so this film vividly showed that how the emerging inequality as a social structure, as pointed out in Ku's uh, paper, is actually experienced through the everyday lives of living human beings. You know, of course, Koreans are already experiencing you know this emerging inequality in their everyday life without consciously noticing them. And also the issue of economic inequality has always been a social issue in Korea, as I recall. 
For example, the news always talks about the wage gap between regular and irregular workers or the gap between the rich and the poor. However, explaining inequality by using economic figures or graphs or showing it by using cultural practices related to our everyday life produce, a, I think, this very different effect. For example, you know, explaining economic inequality with a hard number, such as the economic gap between the top 1% and the bottom 90%, how many times? These are different from showing these experience inequality in life choices, such as how to dress, what to eat, where to live, what kind of car you to drive, and even what kind of smell you have. So... You know, the, when the hard issues of inequality, which is difficult to personally experience, uh, when it is expressed in a cultural form, I think it allowed us to see more vividly how inequality is actually existed in our everyday life. So, so Dan, what surprised you most? Well, I, I, I think that's that's a great, great point that you made. Cause, and, and just to add to that a little bit, um, I mean, one of the things that I, that, that the, reading the paper, especially that wonderful paper on inequality in Korea alongside the film, um, made me realize again that what, what, when you read a paper like that, it tends to make you think in terms of kind of the victims of the system versus the winners of the system, and therefore also to see them as kind of passive, right? I think this is an, an automatic projection that we tend to have in thinking about victimization. We tend to think about them as being people who aren't able to fend for themselves, who have no real creative or participatory abilities, um, et cetera, et cetera. And so it tends to also dehumanize them in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And so to think about, um, uh, I think the strength of, of, of the film in that sense is not just in, in connecting emotion, like an emotional engagement to these characters, but I think the particular strength of Parasite is in how it also humanizes them in ways that refuses to see them as mere victims of the system. I mean, we see in what ways their lives are impacted by poverty, and also how they are viewed by people who aren't poor, or especially by people who are rich. And I love that, like the thing that Ricky pointed out and how, I, and I, 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 it's crazy how I've, I've seen this movie at least eight times. And I was watching it last night again, and it was, it was really the first time that I even noticed, and I feel stupid for saying this, but it was the first time that I noticed that the thing that actually impels uh, Kitek to kill, to kill Park at the end is this is the fact that he's he's holding his nose for the smell and i i, I felt so stupid because there's so much going on in that scene that it's i always was overwhelmed by it right and like all the violence and all the blood all of a sudden and it happens quite quickly but there's an incredible precision to how the class conflict is there visualized through this oral response to the fact that when he's turning over the dead body he has to hold his nose because of the smell of poverty that's there um, and I think that in the way that the family is presented, not just as, you know, not passive victims of the system, but of people who are creative, who are smart, who collaborate together, and who in a lot of ways really work like a film production team. I mean, they have re rehearsals of the script, they talk about whether a scene will work or not, etc. I mean, all of those things really add to its impact in this cross-sect, cross, in this relationship between um, a class inequality and uh, creative abilities. Yeah, thank you. So these are all great points. I just want to add that, so when I first saw the, the film and I saw it as a sociologist, I was struck by the sort of the, the, the recurrence of the same metaphors about class 
that I know from, from European and Western studies. And smell is indeed one of the very strong themes. And I was reminded, so there is a famous essay by George Orwell, The Road to Wigan Pier. And one of the recurring things, because it's about class and class in, in the UK in the, in the early 20th century, and one of the recurring themes is that, that people believe that the working classes smell. And this is, so this comes up almost every sort of chapter of the book. And I, I was so struck by the, by the idea that this notion that the working classes smell, that this is indeed sort of recurring theme, and indeed it sets off the most uh, heinous moment of violence is indeed when he sort of, when he holds his nose in, in disgust. So it's really, it's about disgust in smell. And it's, it's astonishing. So it was really stunning for me to see that this metaphor and also the other metaphors, so also the metaphor of, of vermin and the metaphor of high-low, so the yeah, whole movie underground or above stairs yes. and underground and above yeah. ground and water going down. And there is extremely, there is for me the, the strongest, sort of the most visually powerful is the moment when when the when the poor family when they flee from the house of the rich family and they sort of go down and it rains and they sort of and they they end up literally in the gutter because the the the, the sewage has overflown mm -hmm. and I think the, the so the metaphors that somehow are are the same and that's so that's so striking that that it seems to be in so many ways so close also because of the underlying sort of emotional structures that it appeals to of, of disgust and and hierarchies is so um was so similar to what i've seen in other places so there was really a, a well that was really when i thought this is so sociological and mm -hmm. on such a sort of deep level expresses how hierarchies work and how inequalities are persistent <laughs> So this brings us to the central question, which is what does this movie tell us about inequality and what it is does it tell us about what culture has to do with inequality? And the first question I have, and I think probably first for Ricky, so how is it possible that such a film was made in the context of what we have, you know, what I sort of assume and think think to know as one of the most competitive neoliberal cultural industries of the world. So like South Korea, where this industry is so being so, you know, we know it is very commercial, very profit oriented, um, um, super pop culture, and then it creates this critical masterpiece. So how is this possible? What happened? Well, uh, to be honest, I don't know. I don't know exactly the answer, <laughs> but I think that the personal ability of Director Bong Joon-ho is a big factor in making such a movie into a mainstream commercial film scene. Yeah. You know? uh, he has consistently produced works that deal with social issues. And I think that his ability to you know, appropriate, uh, solve them appropriating the grammar of commercial genre movie, such as uh, using thriller, horror, black comedy, is actually outstanding. So in other words, Bong Joon-ho's film deals with social issues. But I think that in terms of the way how he to deal with it cinematically, he nicely and fully exploit uh, the grammar of commercial genre movies. And he's a director who has continuously shown that his film can be successful in terms of business as a commercial film in this regard. And in, the, in this sense, you know, his film have been successfully drawing investment from large capital, uh, both domestically and globally. 
I think then, you know, as a uh, cinema scholar, probably know more about this. But Mm -hmm. anyway, yeah. But he has a background in sociology, right? I think this is something that comes up. Yes, I mean, he created one of the most prestigious private university in Korea from sociology department. So that, I mean, if you track down all of his... uh, filmography, you can find most of them is actually deal with the sociological problems. Yeah. So Dan, do you think a similar film could be made in Hollywood or in Europe? Sure, sure. I mean, I, um, I think um, it's, it's not often that we see a film like this being made in any industry, just because the, I think the, the very specific combination of knowledge and skills that Bong Joon-ho has as a director and as a thinker and sociologist is 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 in a way unique. Um, I mean, he's, he's not just somebody who studied sociology, but he's also somebody who was uh, a student during, you know, the, the student protests that mm-hmm. were happening. Uh, yes. uh, and Regan knows more about that history than mm-hmm. I do, but he was incredibly politically involved as a student. And I think a lot of that shines through in his life. Um, but I think, you know, it's, it's always, there's always this weird tension between um, living in, uh, you know, a capitalist society and the kinds of stories that circulate within it, which on the one hand tend to... Um, tend to mythologize the values that are central to capitalist as a form as a as a form as a system of social relations but that also always have to do that by because the films are generally made for a, a, um, a lower and middle class so they always always have to present themselves as being about the common man and they usually do that in a way that does tend to vilify the worst kind of capitalists everything from you know, Mr. Smith goes to Washington, or it's a wonderful life. Always, they always have these. You know, the evil capitalist overlord who has too much power and must be resisted. Um, even a company like Disney, which is you know, I think well known for being one of the main uh, villains. I think you know, in the media landscape and in the way they produce you know, waste and and, and plastic, would make a film like Wall-E, which is about, you know, how the world is going to end because of this overproduction and this lack of ecological awareness. Um, so I think um, I think th- it's something that, that is definitely fine within the system because it shows that the system of capitalism is open enough to have critique of that very system. And in that sense, I think it strengthens rather than diminishes it. But still, it's rare to have a film that is so pointed in its critique as Parasite to become so, well, to win an Oscar for one thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so what's interesting it compared with, with the sort of American movies that you mentioned is that n- nobody seems to be really uh, evil uh, in this sort of simplistic way, right? Yeah. Yeah, there's... In, there's in a... Parasite. So everybody is not yeah. exactly sympathetic, but nobody is more specifically awful or one-dimensionally bad yes the, as in my reading yeah. i would say that the general tendency in in hollywood films is to um is to let the system off the hook by pointing to an individual who has misused the system and then at the end since the individual is most commonly killed uh, then the system is free to operate as it, as it had. But this is also a question of periodization, because if you look at the 1970s, there were a huge number of Hollywood films that were all about how, you know, uh, inherently corrupt the government must be, how everything was about political conspiracies, and how at the end, the good people die and the bad system continues. So there have been many periods, or there have been some periods in Hollywood history as well, where this was uh, not so uncommon as it is today. 
So of the characters in the movie, which is the person that you that you appreciated most uh, now that we come to it? So because nobody's really evil, but also nobody's really nice. Um, well, for me, it's Kiyong, which is who I mentioned before, the do- because she's such a natural actress. And I think I love the fact that how uh, she has this, uh, as a character, she has this almost preternatural understanding of how to uh, take the stage and how to impress rich people. And the way to impress rich people is to be arrogant and to be, uh, and, and to be aloof and to be dictatorial. So uh, it's it's very funny to see her brother come in and sort of be almost, he almost doesn't get the job because he's too demi- diminutive. You know, he's he's sort of, he's, he's in awe of this wealth. And they almost say, well, you might not be right. And he just barely gets in. But then she comes in and as soon as she's inside, she just takes over the household and she's telling her, she's telling the mother, no, 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 no. That's not the way it's going to be. No, I need much more money because the more she asks, the more the more she's respected, right? Um, and so, and and so, you know, her ultimately, you know, being the one who becomes the real victim of the, one of the real lethal victims of the story is one of the greatest tragedies of it. It's especially because he almost lets us off the hook and think she's going to be okay. And then ugh, it's turned around. You know? No, So Ricky, so who was the person you identified most? Oh, uh, well, in my case, uh, the Kim's family's father, Kitek, so the main character. I think he's most, uh, I mean, as a Korean, he's most uh, real person, real poor people, what kind of oppressed they express, you know, and uh, he's very servile in some sense, you know, to survive within the system. He's not outspoken, you know, always docile, you know, he have to serve for other people. But at the last part, you know, he shows some, you know, edge, like, you know, I can I can stand with everything, but this one, uh, I mean, you know, the the part that he she actually killed the Mr. Park actually show that. I personally think that that scene itself, what Mr. Park is actually showing, it's uh, the denial of the very existence of uh, the lower class people, because the smell itself is actually related to existence itself. So so. You know, so the, the key tech is actually showing that, yes, we can uh, oppress and I can stand with it. But uh, if you deny uh, my very existence, I can stand with it. So I, I, at least it's so incredible how the it's so incredible how expressive he is. Yes. In, in, even in very short shots, you can mm-hmm. he, he, without any dialogue, his face could communicate so much yes. in these little moments. It's absolutely, yes. especially when he changes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I, so I think that, that that's actually showing that what is the bottom line that how we can actually change the system. You know, so we need to think about uh, not only the issue of inequality, but we also think about how the system actually uh downgrade our dignity and you know our, our decency as a human being you know so it's, that's that's more different dimension is actually the movie is actually uh touching so i think you know so the key tech is my favorite so yeah it's about human dignity yes, yes. yeah and the and the impossibility of yeah that's eventually it's i think it's about the impossibility of dignity for for anyone in the system mm-hmm. right yes. that's what it shows so this is also the sort of the, the big question that that I, so what is the story that the movie is telling us about inequality? 
Well, I don't know whether Bong Joon-ho actually know the produce concept of class distinction, but I think that this movie is a good text to study about, you know, those concepts. So in this movie, I think it shows how social inequality and class differences are actually justified by various forms of cultural practices, you know. And Bruges argued that class differences do not simply remain in the field of economy, but, but that, you know, higher classes make a kind of distinction through various cultural practices. And the film showed that class differences and boundaries are being produced in all areas of our life, such as food, education, leisure, living place, etc. And the accumulation of, you know, these cultural distinction between classes, it cannot be easily resolved because cultural experience accumulate, accumulate in our everyday life, it requires time. So uh, in other words, even if, you know, the gap between rich and poor is resolved economically at some point, I don't know, that is possible. Well, <laughs> tomorrow, maybe, you know, but inequality expressed and experienced as a cultural gap is likely to continue, I, I think. So in other words, it is necessary to think about not only how to reduce the economic gap, but also we need to think about how to overcome the cultural distinctions derived from these economic inequality and gaps, I think. Yeah, so yeah. So a Bourgeoisian movie, yeah, I would I would very much agree with that. So I think but I think maybe Dan has a different interpretation. So Dan, what do you what is the story that it tells us about inequality? Um well for me, as you know, as as a humanities scholar and uh and a sort of closet humanist, <laughs> um I uh, I always I'm I'm kind of struck by how the film um, it really shows us how capitalism makes it impossible to love. Um, anyway, that that was a thing that I picked up on on one of my one of my viewings of the film, together with his other films. That there's, or maybe to put it a little bit more accurately, that it um, uh, it it misapplies the term love and makes it something that is only that only exists within a very small circle. And I think what the film shows, it, it, and this is, I think, one for me, one of its many points of genius. Right? It shows us this, this, the, the main family, right, the poor family, um, and it shows them as a functional unit operating together and closely tied through these bonds of family, uh, but with very weak bonds outside of that. Right. And I think it's very telling that in the first half of the film, we see their apartment, but we see very little of the environment that surrounds it, which is very hostile. Um, and as we see them develop and as we see them successfully move upwards, um, we, 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 for a moment, we get the illusion that this is going to be a comedy of manners and that working together to fool the silly rich people is actually going to make them a stronger family. But in this very long scene that is exactly at the middle of the film, uh, when the rainstorm also begins, right? When they're inside and they're kind of playing the role, they've, 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 they've gained this freedom and now they can actually, we've seen them slowly in these little details, starting to eat more and more expensive food, drink more expensive imported beer, etc. So they're moving up. But as they move up, they, they hit us literally a kind of ceiling, an emotional ceiling. Because in that scene where they're getting drunk, we also see the actual internal um, uh, um, uh, tensions that are at the same time pulling this family apart. 
And I think ultimately, and, and then, and that's when, when all of the tensions sort start to become violently visible. And these tensions are the tensions that are produced by a system that only works by focusing, by atomizing the collect, a, a sense of collective citizenship, right? Where citizenship should be grounded in mutual, in dignity, in respect, and in forms that are really about solidarity and therefore connected to forms of love. And I think that that is where this, um, uh, where the film really becomes a, such a deep tragedy, right? And on the one hand, illuminating the fact that that love, there is, there is so much basis for it in both of these families, but they're both to fatally constricted by a system that works as a parasite upon that energy and draws it out of them and puts them up against each other. Yes. Yeah. Well put. Yeah. It's a interesting. Also, so you say it moves from from comedy to tragedy, but I what strikes me is that it really moves from from tra from comedy to horror. Yeah. I think that's yeah. so. I think many of the tropes in the so the halfway, and I think that's also a very strong. So it's really it shows it shows inequality in capitalism as as horror. Yes. I think yeah. in a very yeah. including all the sort of blood and and sort of big splashy special effects of. Uh, Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So, so on to a slightly less dramatic. So, because we also want to talk about culture in the more specific way. So, one of the things that that the director was really surprised about was indeed that it worked so well outside of Korea. I think that was the big. Uh, so the so the the twin questions I have for both of you is first, what makes it so Korean, and then second, what makes it so global? Because I think it's both. So the first question about what is specifically Korean about this uh, and maybe Ricky you would be the right first person to say something about this because you said also with your paper that that this is the paper is the, the is the, the the paper of the movie so what's how as how do you see this as a Korean movie well I mean I mean we also I mean if it's a Korean we also need to think about why it's so globally appealed So uh, I think this movie is actually a a you know typical form of you know nowadays uh, South Korean culture contents are globally you know appeal. So there is a field of uh, study called the Korean Wave Studies. So this is a field that uh, they researching about why Korean cultural contents appeal globally. So among the recent claim, some scholars actually argue that Korean contents are dealing with the Korean characteristics, conditions, and situations, but with the attentive connection to the global tendency. So such as, you know, emerging economic and social inequality. And Parasite is, you know, a typical example. So I think parasites show the emerging inequality in Korea by using Korean cases, but they are well matched with the global synchronicity. So I think that it creates some kind of feeling of familiar freshness or familiar uniqueness. I mean, all the props, you know, using their, uh, like, for example, the ramdong, which is very Korean thing. Yeah. <laughs> 
but you know those kind of things are very much like Korean thing. But you know all those uh, all those. So, so, yeah. So just to interrupt, the rendon is food. Yes. 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 Uh, in in Korean term is so it's a noodle. Yes, it's a Korean. Yeah. Korean term is japaguri. Is actually is actually japaguri. But anyway, you know they're using those kind of things. But all those things are actually well structured, and the theme itself is actually you know very much like global. Globally appeal theme, so I think that's you know one of the reason why uh, this movie is so appealed to not only Korean but also you know global audiences. Yeah. So Dan, what would you say? How do you see the movie as Korean, and how do you see it as global? Well, um, I, well, this let's. I'm not. I've I've never even been to Korea, so it's hard for me to place it in as Korean outside of the fact that I'm a big fan of of South Korean filmmaking. I mean, there's been a tremendous wave of creativity coming out of South Korea cinema for two decades now. Um, that is that is uh, inspired many filmmakers and critics uh, in a lot of different ways. Um, but I think the the, um, uh, the the global capitalism tendency over the past thirty years. To um, to aggravate social in and economic inequality, right, which we, which has become a universal tendency, and where what we've what we've seen in in many nations, and I think especially uh, outside of the United States, where sort of social democracy was always already weak, right? It was the United States was always already this 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 country of of quite extreme inequality, but in um, I think if you if you look at the responses. In, in Europe to this film, I think one of the things that really um, that really uh, energized that response is the fact that we all live in countries where in our parents' lifetime and for, many, for some of us in our own lifetimes, there was a very strong system of social d- democracy in place with, um, uh, without much extreme poverty. And that we've seen universally, we've seen these systems become eroded, and we've seen um, the uh, the differences between between extreme wealth and extreme poverty really extend quite dramatically. And I think one of the things that the film really expresses is the sense of rage and frustration over this system that nobody feels like they're able to change, and that people benefit from in different ways, but that feels like a a um, a universal illness. And I think that 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 gives it a kind of material grounding, an economic grounding in how we relate to the themes of the film. But in terms of form, I also think that like many of the sort of recent new wave uh, or South Korean filmmakers, um, uh, Bong is really, you know, he's not he's not coming from just a Korean cinema history. He's coming from a quite omnivorous global film uh, film fandom. And when you hear him talk about the film, you know, he'll talk about about Korean classics like uh, The Handmaiden, but he'll also talk about films, you know, by Scorsese, by John Ford, by Quentin Tarantino, you know, by all of the, the, the sort of the great masters of cinema that are universe that are universally known. And that makes the form that he uses very accessible to global audiences. Yes, and indeed it did work very well. Yes. So maybe Ricky, you can say something. You can say something about the the sort of references. So I was also interested about your random. But are there other things that that you think as as uh, Europeans we may have missed? Uh, because the random thing, I so so there is a big sort of online discussion of the whole thing. <laughs> okay. You can Google the movie, and then you'll have sort of endless explanations of many details. So is there uh, something that that really well, made you? Yeah. Well, how about the, you know, that the place they live, this family 
live in semi-basement, which is, it, yeah, it, it didn't really exist in European sense. But that place is actually, uh, if you live semi-basement, which means that it actually tells you about, you know, your class. So, which means that you're poor, you know, and well, yeah, I mean, those kind of things. So this is, a, so this is something that you would recognize as in Seoul. Yeah, so that's, so, that's yeah. very Korean thing, you know, so, so that's very Korean yeah. thing. It's so interesting how that hits at different levels then, because I think that if you know it as something that is very specific, you know, you, mm -hmm. you recognize mm -hmm. it. Um, but also, I think it works just at a symbolic level, right? That you could say, like, yeah. it, it's because it's so, because the way it's framed, I mean, the first shot of the film is mm -hmm. really looking from the apartment through the window out to the street. Yes. And, yes. You, and you can see we're literally underground, mm -hmm. right? Where they're, where they're and trying to capture a signal that is up floating in the air, <laughs> yes. right? I mean, to, access, I, to access information. Yes. I have personal experience when I studied in US, in, I live in the apartment, there is a similar, you know, it's, it's not fully basement, but it has a semi-basement. My, my mom is actually visiting me and she found that somebody lived there and she was surprised. <laughs> oh, is there a semi-basement in US? And is that room is cheaper than yours? <laughs> she asked me. No, the same price. <laughs> they don't have any of those kind of stigmatization here. But anyway, but we, we have those kind of things, you know. So So I think we should go back to the sort of the, the final question. So uh, the question that I want to ask you now is if we look at this movie. Uh, and we think about it in terms of of cultural inequality. So where can we go from here as either film scholars or cultural scholars or sociologists? Um, so what can we do with movies like this? Uh, where so should we teach them? Uh, will this change people? So where where do we go from here with this sort of conversation? Okay, so. Ricky, okay, so yeah, I, it's a big question. Okay, I yeah, think the yeah. film's most unique point is that in its representation of lower classes, which is, you know, lower classes, people are struggling with each other about how to survive within a given class location rather than trying to solve their structural problems. So in that point, I think the conflict and fight between Kim's family and the family of, you know, former housekeeper, uh, represent what Franz Fanon, you know, once described horizontal violence, uh, which is, you know, the intergroup manifestation of conflict that results from the opposition of colonization Africa. So horizontal violence is not just about, you know, description of intergroup conflict or various forms of bullying. I think it embedded an understanding of how oppressed group direct their frustration and dissatisfaction toward each other as a response to a system that has excluded from uh, power. So I think we need to think about, you know, how we can solve it. And I think this, is the, this question is related to how we can invent the solidarity and how we can share the solidarity to fix the system. And in that reason, you know, the key text, you know, the last scene, you know, when he killed the Mr. Park because of, you know, the, his denial of the very existence of lower class, that actually shows some a clue, you know, how we can develop solidarity. I think we can 
think about not only issue about you know the uh the economic inequality, but we also need to think about how this inequality is actually uh destruct our human decency and dignity and social recognition and social respect. And you know, as A.P. Thompson, you know, fa- famously demonstrate. Labor movement as an important form of political insurgence of the oppressed are often created when social recognition and respect are broken. So, you know, they represent more than simply a demand for economic redistribution. So in this this respect, we need to further think about how economic inequality connect to the problem of social recognition and human dignity and how to solve this problem by inventing and sharing solidarity among the oppressed. Yes. Wow. Yes, indeed. So yeah, I agree very much. I'm also I I also think what struck me most and I really agree with you. I think it's also really telling how well the movie can do that and also compared with many of the sociological articles we also write about this and read about this. So I think yeah, but it indeed it it's it's also like a call to action and a painful exposition of how things go wrong okay. yeah. so, so so basically <laughs> so, yeah. what we need is yeah. not horizontal violence yeah. between you know in, intergroup no. but what we need is a vertical you know insurgents so yeah. intra-class you know <laughs> <laughs> the fighting yeah. so anyway so, <laughs> yes. yes okay so call for revolution here or maybe a labor movement mm-hmm. right that's also yeah uh, but thank you so dan how do you respond to this uh, so if if the question was so how did you know how to do like I I I end, warmly endorse everything everything that you just said so just let me put that first and foremost but I so for, for me um, uh, what strikes me about the film is that in um, if if this film had been released maybe twenty years ago I think it would have generally been categorized as a science fiction film right in 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 the way because what science fiction has done for many years is create these dystopias of extreme disparities, right? Of extrapolating, like what if capitalism got so out of control that people were literally living in different worlds? Films like Elysium, where the poor people are stuck on earth and the rich people are up in some kind of satellite, you know, like with Elon Musk and all his buddies and they have robots and things like that. That's that's literally what this film is doing. And I think like his previous more literal film, Snowpiercer, what he's showing is that this the system of capitalism as it has become global is uh, is not just unsustainable, but it's dehumanizing. It's immoral, and it must therefore it must be destroyed, right? So it's it's uh, it's a system that that is killing us, right? As we live inside of it, and so the way I would place the film is as as a, a, a vital illustration of what the the goals that anti capitalist movements have, right? In showing not just giving a face, but giving a story, giving emotions, giving a sense of humor to um, the realities that people are struggling against, right? The idea that the system that we have is parasitical upon us, right, as human beings, and that as as individuals, and I think that's the thing that the film dis- illustrates most vividly, as individuals, we really have no no way to to escape it because both families are in different ways the, vic- the victims of the system, even though it, it, it translates into radically different outcomes for them. So the only way to actually resist the system is to organize, right? To organize politically. Uh, so that's, so yeah, if, if that was a call to revolution, I warmly endorse it. I think the film shows that individual, even very cleverly constructed individual uh, uh, tactics 
to resist the strategies of global capitalism are ultimately pointless, right? Are doomed to failure in, for a lot of different reasons. Um, so, uh, so yes, uh, you know, we'll, we'll go back to uh, the Communist Manifesto and say, workers of the world unite, you know, you have nothing to lose but your chains. <laughs> so this... Uh... This is communist call to action. <laughs> I think uh, takes us to the end of the of this uh, the general discussion. Um, so to sum up, so this was a podcast in the culture and inequality series with Ricky Changwoo Kim from Korea and Dan Hasler Forrest from the Netherlands talking about Parasite the movie. So we've now done quite a few of these podcasts and we've talked about inequalities quite a bit, but I think nothing has has uh, sort of led to t really sort of the, the emotional concern with injustice as particularly this podcast where we talked about the movie. Uh, so I want to thank you very much for this conversation. Ricky, thank you so much for joining us all the way from Korea, which we can do now. And Dan, thank you so much also for joining me. I think probably 15 kilometers from here, but right now I think it <laughs> feels <laughs> as far. And also thank you to Luke who has been here in the background doing the tech and not saying, saying anything, but he's here always. Thank you so much. And I hope to um, welcome you again to another episode of Culture and Inequality podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you.